This is the single greatest day of the year to memorialize a work undeserved that changes everything. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because he lives, I know who holds the future. Can you say amen to that? Yeah, that's what we're celebrating. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1, and I'm going to try to slam a lot in a little. And uh, I uh, periodically, during these weeks, read the gospel accounts of the passion of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, just rehearsing, remembering, recalibrating, and always humbled by what I don't remember that strikes me uniquely and also do some reviewing, and I was doing some reviewing of something I taught in my old life as a pastor in Birmingham in 2013, and uh, I called it Because He Lives, and uh, I was rehearsing the gifts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and was just reading through as reminders of just the treasure, the wonder, the benefit, the reality of what the resurrection of Jesus Christ means. So I've retitled today, I'm going to rehearse with you one of the benefits, I told you last week, we were in James chapter 3, stop becoming many teachers for as such, you'll incur a stricter judgment, so uh, you ought to be sober-minded and humbled by that exhortation from the apostle James, but one of the benefits of being the teacher is you get to teach what you want, and so I wanted to do Resurrection Sunday focused on the resurrection, and I'm calling it Reasons to Rejoice. Why you ought to sing louder today. Why you ought to smile broader today. Why, why your countenance ought to bear witness today. That you have been blessed and benefited beyond imagination if you're a Christian in Jesus Christ. Because you're the beneficiary of his work on your behalf. That's why we sing. That's why we preach. That's the message we proclaim. And my desire today is to give you reasons to rejoice, resurrection truth from the book of Romans. So I'm going to hustle through some key statements, and Johnny already highlighted one, but I'm going to have you look at it. And this is Romans chapter 1, and as you're looking for the book of Romans, let me just highlight some things that I want to begin with foundationally. This morning is about the doctrine of the resurrection, the truth of the resurrection. And I was reading the Westminster Confession, which is 1646. And I love the language. And I know it's thick. But I want you to listen to it because it, it, it houses in a connected way, taking scriptures and truths and realities in a succinct paragraph that gives us what we're talking about today, the doctrine of the resurrection, the Westminster Confession, 1646. It pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten son. Only begotten is monogenes, one of a kind, one of that type. There is no other. 
It pleased God to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten son, to be the mediator, the bridge between God and man, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, being very and eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin. The Lord Jesus, in his human nature, thus united to the divine, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure, having in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, in whom it pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell, the pleroma, the fullness of God's perfections and attributes in Jesus dwelling in his humanity. To the end that, being holy, harmless, undefiled, full of grace and truth, he might be thoroughly furnished to execute the office of a mediator and surety, which office he took not unto himself, but was thereunto called by his Father, This office the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake, which that he might discharge, he was made under the law and did perfectly fulfill it. He endured most grievous torments immediately in his soul and most painful sufferings in his body. He was crucified and died, was buried and remained under the power of death, yet saw no corruption. And on the third day, Jesus Christ arose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered, with which also he ascended into heaven, and there now sits at the right hand of the Father. This is the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It happened, and it changes everything. Simon Greenleaf was one of the founders of the Harvard Law School. He authored the authoritative three-volume text, A Treatise on the Law of Evidence, still used today. It is considered, that work, that three-volume text, the greatest single authority on evidence in the entire literature of legal procedure. Greenleaf literally wrote the rules of evidence for the U.S. legal system. He knew how to weigh the facts. He was an atheist until he accepted a challenge by his students to investigate the case for Christ's resurrection. After personally collecting and examining the evidence based on rules of evidence that he helped to establish, Greenleaf became a Christian and he wrote the classic, The Testimony of the Evangelists. In it, he writes this, Let the gospel's testimony be sifted as it were given in a court of justice on the side of the adverse party, the witness being subjected to a rigorous cross-examination, the result, it is confidently believed, said Greenleaf, will be an undoubting conviction of the integrity, the ability, and the truth of the claim that Jesus is alive, end quote. It's not a dubious belief 
to have confidence in the claim of the death, burial, and the real resurrection of Jesus Christ. There are books written, cases made, students of legal understanding who have evaluated the evidence. It is not unreasonable. Bayes' theorem was just applied in the year 2000 by a professor who said, just taking the data and plugging it into the theorem, 97% probable that what happened, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, has happened, which means it's 3% unlikely based on a theorem. So if you're banking on the fact that it's a myth or a fantasy, you have less to derive your conclusions on than the data would support. The resurrection has happened and it has implications. And today I want to give you some of the reasons for rejoicing today. The gospel, the book of Romans, Paul writing to a church he had never been to in Rome, wrote these words, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, verse 1, called as an apostle, sent apart, set apart for the gospel of God, which is the theme of this book, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now here we go, 3 and 4. Concerning his son. So the gospel is about the son of God, which God promised beforehand the good news about that son in the Old Testament, the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. So in his humanity, he was the son of David, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Gift number one, reasons to rejoice first and foremost. One of the critical ripple effects of the reality of the resurrection is the undeniable evidence that you have a divine Savior. The gospel is son of man, a suitable Savior. He had to be a man because he's representing men. Jesus had to be human to die as the second Adam for human beings. He had to be one of us in order to substitute for us. He was the son of David according to the flesh in his humanity. But what I want to punctuate today is the second required reality for him to serve as our Savior, and that is that he is the son of God. He is divine. Paul begins the book of Romans with this foundational perspective that Jesus Christ has been declared horizo. It's it's like God took a picture of all of humanity. You hear the word horizon in it. And it's like he circled with a highlighter in the human picture, one person, and said, that's my son, the one of a kind God the Son, the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, He is divine, declared to be, marked off, determined, communicated and described as the Son of God, and that was validated how? Look at what the verse says, declared to be, highlighted and determined to be the Son of God with 
power by the resurrection from the dead. And how did that happen? According to the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, resurrecting power in the person of Jesus Christ, validating he's no ordinary man. He is a son of David, representing humanity, and he is the son of God because he needed to do what no man could ultimately do. Not some good man, not the prophet or a compelling teacher, not just a man. Jesus Christ was the Son of God. And his resurrection with power over the enemy's chief power of death validated his deity. Now listen. And not only his deity, but his sovereign authority. John chapter 2 Verses 18 through 22, as the Son of God with divine authority, Jesus said his resurrection would validate his deity and affirm his sovereign authority over the house of God and the people of God. John 2, 18, the Jews therefore answered and said to him, this is after he had uh, cleansed the temple. He'd gone in and called it a house of merchandise, My father's house shall be a house of prayer. And the Jews were asking, by what authority do you do this? John 2, the Jews therefore answered and said to him, what sign, what evidence, what validation do you give to show to us seeing that you do these things? And Jesus answered and said to them, now listen to this, destroy this temple in three days I will raise it up. The Jews therefore said it took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? Verse 21, but he was speaking of the temple of his body, says the apostle John. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. Said what? I'm the son of God. I have authority over the house of God. I am sovereign over the people of God. This is my father's house, and in my divine role as the son of God, son of man, I have authority over this house. They remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture that he was the son of God and the word which Jesus had spoken. Your savior, son of David, son of God, validated by the resurrection, Three days. Why? What sign do I give you? My resurrection is a sign I have authority over the house of God. I am God. Acts 4.10, Peter declares his resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, establishes Jesus' unequal divine saving capacity. Said in a different way, by my resurrection, he will say, I have authority over disease and death. Let it be known to all of you, this is Acts 4.10, Peter preaching. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, listen, whom God raised from the dead. By this name, the authority in the one raised from the dead, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone, referring to Jesus Christ of the Nazarene, which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became, by his resurrection, the very cornerstone. 
And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which you must be saved, because only Jesus Christ has the authority to heal disease. Only Jesus Christ has the power to save a soul. Only Jesus Christ in His divinity as the Savior, man, God, validated by His resurrection. This one, His name, has the power to transform your life. It has sovereign capacity. Listen to Acts 5. The apostles declare Jesus' resurrection validates His elevation to the place where God alone is enthroned with authority to rule and to save. Listen to Acts 5.20 or verse 30. We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, resurrection, whom you put to death by hanging Him on a cross. He is the one, because of His resurrection, who has, whom God has exalted to His right hand. Listen, as a prince. What is that? Sovereign ruler. As a prince and a savior a deliverer, a rescuer, exalted to his right hand as a prince with ruling authority and as a savior with saving, forgiving authority to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Now listen. The resurrection, a reason to rejoice, is you not only have a man who can represent you, you have a God-man who has authority over everything that has to do with you. He can deliver you. He can heal you. Every promise made, he has the capacity to fulfill. Because of the resurrection, he is who he says he is. And he can do what he says he can do. Revelation 1, Jesus' own words. To John in the Revelation, he communicates because he lives, he has this capacity. He has divine authority over death and over hell. Revelation 1, verse 17, And when I saw him, capital H, John talking about seeing Jesus in all of his glory, I fell at his feet as a dead man. And he laid his right hand upon me, Jesus to John, son of David, son of God, son of man, son of God. I, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. Now listen to this. And I have the keys of death and of Hades, the grave and hell. I have authority over those things. We have a Savior with divine power and authority over all things, and we have a Savior who has power over the most important things. He is 
the Son of Man, he makes promises, and he has the power to keep those promises. He's a divine Savior who resurrects the temple of his body. He's a divine Savior who anchors as a cornerstone the temple of God on earth, the church. He's the divine Savior who heals bodies and saves souls. He's the divine Savior who shares the throne of God, wields authority over all enemies, and with his matchless authority and his power expression of that, the most powerful expression of authority against humanity is death. And you read in 1 Corinthians 15, death, where is your sting? It's been swallowed up in victory. The authority of all authorities, the enemy of man, Jesus Christ, sovereign authority has overcome it all. Because he's alive, it validates every claim he made. You needed a human representative. And you needed a divine Savior to execute the promises that deliver us from the consequence of the fall. Jesus Christ has authority. I just found it interesting, just as a highlight, the Holy Spirit raised Jesus according to Romans 1. The Father has the authority to raise the dead according to John 5. As the Father raises the dead and gives them life, listen to this, so also the Son gives life to those whom He wishes. Jesus said, I'm going to raise this temple. I have authority. Jesus raised Jesus. The Father granted authority to the Son Remember John 10, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Aren't you glad that you have a divine Savior who can represent you and then satisfy every promise that has been made for you? Listen, whatever the struggle is, whatever the challenge is, He has the capacity, sovereign power to accomplish the work that he promises to do. Can you say amen to that? He's been declared by the power of the Holy Spirit, marked out, one of a kind, this is my son. Turn over, if you would, to a second installment in Romans chapter 4. Johnny highlighted this one. You can't help it. It's okay. I don't want to say, hey, don't highlight something on Easter Sunday. Highlight all you want. You can't say enough. But I want you to notice by looking at it, not just by hearing it quoted, a claim that not only do we have the undeniable evidence that we have a divine Savior who rules over all things with sovereign authority, but we have a second reason to rejoice. We have unwavering future confidence before God, our Creator and future Judge. Notice what is said as it relates to the promises of God by faith. Talking about Abraham, it says in verse 22, chapter 4, Therefore it was credited to him as righteousness. What was? He believed the promise of God. He believed that what God has promised, he's able also to perform. What had God promised Abraham? You're going to have a son. Well, I'm too old to have a son. My wife's way too old. Her womb is dead. 
No, Abraham didn't stagger at the promise of God, grew strong through faith, being confident that what God had promised, he was able also to perform, and that confidence was credited to him, according to verse 22, as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him. So not only was Abraham benefited by this confidence in the promise of God, but not just for him, but for others. Verse 24, what others? But for our sake also, to whom it will be credited. What will be credited? Righteousness will be credited. What kind of righteousness? Perfect righteousness. What you can't earn by your good behavior, what you can't make up for by your resolve, your determination to not lie, your determination to not struggle with temptation doesn't secure this righteousness. This righteousness is credited by faith. Abraham is proof of that, and it wasn't only this claim good for him. It was for our sake that it was credited as those who believe in him. Now watch verse 24, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. You see the resurrection there? He who was delivered over Christ because of our transgressions and was raised because of or on account of, this is a causal claim, he was raised for our justification because of our justification. Let me tell you what he just said. He said that Jesus Christ in his propitiation, propitiation means a satisfaction, something that an action done to regain favor when an injury or an offense occurs. Propitiation is an action meant to regain someone's favor to make up for something you've done wrong. Propitiation. Satisfaction. Let me give you an example. Karen and I are going to celebrate 40 years of being wed this June. Can you believe that? 40 years. And I dated her for two. She doesn't look like she's old enough to be married 40 years, but I do. And she's been my girl for that length of time. And in June, June the 5th, we're going to celebrate 40 years. Now imagine, I forget. We get to June 5, and it's a normal Sunday or Saturday. It's on a weekend. I know that. (laughs) I plan nothing. I bring home nothing. We do nothing. I just show up and say, what's for breakfast? What happens? I'll tell you what happens. An offense happens. (laughs) Do I have a witness? (laughs) I do have a witness. That's right. And and it's an offense that's what? Big, deep. Let's say I do it. I forget. And it's an offense. What will it take to propitiate that offense? Who determines that? 
The offended party determines that. I can offer a list of repentant efforts, gifts, flowers, promises, but who defines what satisfies the injury and the offense? She does. Let me tell you what it won't be, chocolates. (laughs) It'll be bigger than chocolates, and she loves chocolates. It'll be more than flowers. Why? Because of the gravity of the offense. What Jesus did was satisfy a significantly greater offense. Not mine toward my wife, mine toward God. Yours toward God. Look at Romans chapter 3, just as a reminder. You know, Romans 3 concludes this argument that all have sinned. Everybody has fallen short of the glory of God. The secularists, the people who blow God off, suppress the truth and unrighteousness, do their own thing. They don't honor God as God. God gives them up to their futility of mind. They lose their ability to discriminate between right and wrong, chapter 1. Chapter 2, the moralist. The moralist says, hey, I'm a good person. I'll do the right thing. And God's indictment on them through Paul is, you're guilty of the same things. You say you don't, but actually you do. Oh, what about the religious person in chapter 2? The Jews who had the law. Well, you have the law, but you don't keep the law. And the conclusion is... All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. Chapter 3 says the whole world, verse 19, is accountable to God because there's none righteous. Everybody turns their own way. Whether they're a secularist, a moralist, or a religionist, it doesn't matter. Everybody's busted under the divine expectation of what God requires in his moral law. Verse 23, chapter 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 21, same chapter, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and prophets. Who does that have to do with? This righteousness of God manifested and witnessed. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through what? Through faith. In whom? Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ, for who? For who? For all who believe. That I reject God outright, I think I'm a good guy today and I'm not, or I'm religious and I can't live up to the things I know to do, I'm guilty, and anybody who believes, anybody, red and yellow, black and white, No matter who you are, how old you are, where you come from, there's a righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction. Verse 25, this Jesus Christ, or verse 24 rather, being justified as a gift. How much do you pay for gifts? Nothing. Or it's not a gift. Being justified, declared righteous, and treated as righteous. Being justified as a gift by His grace. What is grace? 
unmerited favor, something you get not because you pay for it or you deserve it, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Here it is, verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a what? As a propitiation. The offense of sin, the payment of which is death and hell, not just death in the grave, but eternal separation from God. That justice was propitiated through Jesus Christ. Propitiation in his blood, and we received the benefit of that satisfaction through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. In other words, sin didn't bring instant death. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time. Now watch this, verse 26, so that he would be just. Because God can't overlook sin. The offense is against a holy God. God is angry at sin every day. God's wrath is the reason propitiation is necessary. And God's holiness is what makes that wrath reality. Because he loves himself supremely, says John Murray, he cannot suffer what belongs to the integrity of his character and glory to be compromised or curtailed. Sin in God's economy will ultimately be punished either one day in eternal hell or on that day on the cross in the propitiation, satisfaction, the offended God naming what it cost to restore what was broken, my son, God in the flesh, the lamb who takes away the sin and bears the consequence so that God could be just and so that God could justify unworthy sinners like you and me. And Louis, it is all of us. We may clean up good. But God does not look on the outward things. He looks on the heart. And every one of us is an offender. And what the resurrection says, he's resurrected from the dead because our justification, God's justice was satisfied in his propitiating offering himself for us. And when he was resurrected from the dead, it was because our justification is complete. I'm righteous. I'm righteous. Because I've been gifted the righteousness of someone else. He who knew no sin became sin for me that I might become the righteousness of God in him. And how do I know that transaction has happened for those who believe by faith? Jesus is alive. It is the validating evidence that I do not have anything to fear from a future judge who I will meet. Jesus was raised as a validation that his work on our behalf was accepted. 
that it propitiated and satisfied the holy God's perfect and pure justice. And as a consequence, those who by faith believe are justified. We are legally and literally declared perfectly righteous. In part, Jesus' resurrection has happened to undeniably communicate that our moral debt has been satisfied and our guilt legally has been removed completely. How do you know that's true? Because, he's a, because he lives. Listen, one of the greatest benefits you enjoy is the recognition that you have a risen Savior who has satisfied fully a debt you couldn't pay And when you get home to heaven, you have nothing to fear. It's interesting. In Acts 17, verse 30, it says that God overlooked the times of ignorance. That's man's ignorance. God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. So in the past, God overlooked ignorance, but not now. He is declaring, says Peter, that men everywhere should repent. Metanoia, change their mind, turn in a new direction. Sorry enough to change, reasonable enough to turn around. Therefore, God has called and declared that men everywhere should repent because, listen to the rationale and the reason, because God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. The judge is our justifier, and the justifier is our judge. Aren't you glad for that? Because when we're before him, listen, have you ever, you probably have not had this experience, but I have. The, the lights go on, you pull over, and he walks up, you put the window down, you have your hands on the wheel, and you hear these words, license, registration, and insurance. Ever had that happen? No, I'm the only one. Okay, so just <laughs> bear with me. Tell me how you feel. What a good day. (laughs) You know what else you feel? I sure hope the stuff I need's in the glove box. (laughs) So you get in your glove box, and I don't know what you have yours in. I have mine in a little plastic bag, and I pull it out and go, man, I hope this stuff is up to date. (laughs) Are you with me? Why? Because if you don't have the current credentials, you're in trouble. When my grandmother was on her latter days of life, she lived with us. We cared for her. Mammy and I would have, that's what I called her, my grandmother, Mammy. We would have conversations. She grew up Arminian. Not Armenian, Arminian. Arminian says, I choose to get in, I can choose to get out. I sin, I lose my salvation. 
So that's how she grew up. And the latter years of her life, she was in my church and heard things a good bit different than that. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. You don't keep it because you earn it and deserve it. He earned it. He deserved it. And he gifted it. But she would struggle. She would struggle because she would say, I don't know if I've done enough. And we'd rehearse the gospel. We'd rehearse the gospel. You know what? It is a horrible feeling to lay in bed at night and wonder if you've done enough. Are the, are the credentials in the glove box? Someday, there's a fixed day, you're going to stand before the God of justice with eyes that flame like fire, and there's no excuses, there's no denying, there's no running, there's no explaining. You're going to stand there, and it's not going to be license, registration, and insurance card, and it's not going to be a $180 fine at risk. It's everything for eternity. And you know what gives you peace of mind when you meet your judge? He's resurrected as the validating evidence for those who believe you got the credentials. You don't have to be afraid. Listen, the great resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, after it talks about the new body we're going to get, which is one of the reasons to rejoice. Some of us are sick. Some of us hurt every day. Some of you live with illness. Some of you are watching somebody fade away. You know what the resurrection guarantees? A new just like Jesus has body because of the resurrection. But after it talks about sown perishable, raised imperishable, my body's corrupt, it's dying. I'm declining. I can't lift it anymore. I can't throw it as far anymore. I can't certainly run as fast anymore, if I can run at all. Sown perishable, raised imperishable. Sown in dishonor, raised with glory. Sown one way, resurrected a whole nother way. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this mortal is going to put on immortality. And I'm going to take the one who had the form of the earthy. This is earthy. Not this, but this. This is earthy. But I'm going to put on the form, the morphe of the heavenly. Jesus Christ. And the reason is, is because death, my greatest enemy and yours, which validates my condition, is swallowed up in victory through Jesus Christ, the Lord. You know, I have reasons to rejoice today because I don't have to be afraid today. I have reasons to rejoice today because he can do everything he promised me he could do today. He's alive. He is risen. And he is risen indeed. And every benefit claimed is ours because he lives.
Can you say amen to that? Man, Romans has a lot to say. Romans 6 says, because he lives, I can walk in newness of life. I have power over the flesh because he lives. Because of the power of the resurrection available to us who believe, Ephesians 1, all the, all the enemies, all of the depravity, all of the foolishness, I have the power to overcome. He's victorious, and we can be victorious. And today we celebrate why. I hope you rejoice loud today. I hope when Jubilant sings, you just jump right in. <laughs> I'm teasing. Let him sing. You just well up in your heart. Father, thank you for the opportunity we share today to be a witness of one who is worthy resurrected, alive from the dead, ascended to heaven's throne, enthroned there, and he ever lives to make intercession for us. Because he's alive, he advocates for us. We have the greatest lawyer making the greatest case. We have an advocate when we sin, and he will never lose. Lord, thank you for the reality of the resurrection, all that it gives all that you've promised, guaranteed. And Lord, this, if this is my last day, Lord, I have the guarantee of life eternal with you. I am the resurrection and the life, said Jesus. You live even if you die. He who believes in me never dies. Thank you for that. Life to life because of your life gifted to us. In Jesus' name, and all God's people say, amen. amen.